call unto thee, O Lord, and send down my life to guide us, for we are weak and afraid, and we lack knowledge. There is no one to hear your plea, no one to answer you, no one to ease your suffering. Lord, have mercy upon us. Hey, hey, welcome to the NY Patriot Show. Here we delve deep into the abyss, covering topics such as occultism, spirituality, secret societies, conspiracies, and the unknown. Join us in trying to put these pieces together and figuring all this shit out. The NY Patriot Show. Welcome back to the NY Patriot Show. Uh, thank you for all for stopping by and uh, checking out another show. Uh, today, by uh, popular demand from uh, other listeners that I have, and I don't know if it was in Discord or Element. Actually, I mean, it was could have been from a few areas. But I have had uh, a bunch of people within like the same week or two ask me to have George from CAFDEF.org on. So uh, today, here we have... George from CavDef.org. Uh, George, why don't you let everybody know, uh, I guess, what your deal is, what is it that you do, and uh, the topic that you wanted to bring to the show today. And, th- and thank you for coming on as well. Yeah, thank you for having me. You know, I've basically been in the sort of parapolitical research and investigation field for the past six years at this point. You know, I started out interested in election fraud, which is actually the namesake of CAPDEF, Coalition Against Voter Disenfranchisement and Election Fraud, and quickly started to realize as I tried to drill into the issue of who is behind U.S. elections, who, you know, controls the machines, who's behind these companies, networks of corrupt election officials, that there was a massive sort of, you know, network of organized crime intersecting with circles of political power. And so my area of inquiry into elections quickly led me into all sorts of other realms like political assassinations, drug running, and ultimately you know, human trafficking scandals like the Franklin case. And so I basically you know, you know, became aware of all of these evil, you know, horrible things that were going on protected by the very apex of power. And I sort of became determined to do what I could to gather evidence and, you know, try to convince as many people as possible that this is what was going on in the world and hope to expose it and, uh, you know, see justice be done for all of these cases after so many years. And that's basically been a big focus of mine. I do a lot into pedophile ring cases, including the abduction of Johnny Gosh and how it ties into the Franklin scandal, which we hope to get to cover very thoroughly today. Yeah, yeah, no, for sure. I find that very interesting because, uh, like I said to you prior, I know with the occult rejects, we did kind of, uh, well, we did actually cover the Franklin scandal too. So, I mean, I, that, that, it didn't, <clears throat> let me finish what I was going to say. And we have covered Gacy. And, um, you know, then you mentioned Johnny Gosh. And there's just so much I feel like going on with, with in that time, during that area, um, during that age. I mean, but, uh, the one thing I, I wanted to say, and I, I think it's great that um, with looking at some of these past things, is because 
with the Franklin scandal, if you were to go back and look at that, well, for one, and, you know, I don't pick either side. But, you know, uh, nowadays it always seems like this stuff only comes from the left. If you go back to the Franklin scandal, for one, you'll see there was a bunch of Republicans involved, in my opinion, too. But um, these things that happened then, like, it, like to me, that's just as bad. If it might have been worse than maybe what even Epstein and Glenn Maxwell was doing. Yeah, or but, at the very least, I mean, what was just, know, what just, we know publicly about Epstein? I mean, I yeah. believe that there's also a lot of hidden underbelly to Epstein's case. You know, a lot of you know, thing you know, trafficking of children, you know, even younger than you know, teen years, which the public perception is that with most of Epstein's victims, and I believe that it was more, it was even worse than that. But certainly, you know, the Franklin, the allegations that we know publicly are, you know, at a level that doesn't even match, you know, what we saw in the Epstein case. I mean, ritual murders, snuff films being made, you know, there's so much incredible darkness in the Franklin scandal. And yet, you know, as far-fetched as it seems to people, it can be extensively, you know, corroborated as Nick Bryant in his book, The Franklin Scandal. That's and an the, amazing book. Before that, yeah, that's pretty well documented by a relatively, you know, mainstream type journalists who also broke a lot of Epstein stories and yet it gets roundly ignored all throughout the mainstream press. Who was that other guy that put out a book too on the Franklin scandal? Yeah, that was, uh, that was John DeCamp who was, was a, it was a Nebraska state Senator. He also was uh, sort of an advisor to the members of the Nebraska legislature who were investigating the Franklin scandal. And he later was also the lawyer for Paul Benassi, one of the victims uh, yes. who later came forward and, indicated that he was part of the Johnny Gosh abduction. So yeah, DeCamp was involved in this stuff from the beginning. There are certain questionable things about him, like his association with CIA director William Colby, who was sort of his mentor. Mm. You know, that there are signs that he may not have represented everything truthfully in the book, had his own agenda, had connections to weird figures like the Lyndon LaRouche crowd, but he did do some important pioneering work, and then Nick Bryant's book, I would say, is the more scrupulously documented, well-corroborated book, uh, and certainly for anyone who wants to get into Franklin for the first time, I would absolutely recommend Bryant's as the best source of information there is. Yeah, I was going to say, if anybody's uh, read John DeCamp's one, definitely check out Nick Bryant's. I think it's probably almost twice the size, too, right? Yeah. I mean, you know, it's, it's, there's a lot in there. <laughs> I know, it, it goes all over the place, all over the country, and Brian mm -hmm. was able to corroborate a lot of things that even DeCamp was not, such as the, you know, direct connection to Washington, you know, to Washington, D.C. and the CIAs, and using this as a sexual blackmail ring, stuff that DeCamp only hinted at in his book because he couldn't outright prove it, and, you know, proving that, you know, Gary Caradori was getting pictures, blackmail pictures in Chicago, so there are a lot of key things that, DeCamp, you know, hints at that are probably, he says, you know, it was most likely true that Bryant is able to establish pretty much beyond a reasonable doubt in his book. Gotcha. Yeah. So, oh yeah. But what, yeah, what I was getting at, and I don't know if maybe because it's just the way the days, you know, times are now, it's so much easier to, for people to mass, massly, you know, uh, see stuff, you know, with the internet. Maybe back then, not many people saw whatever happened to be on the TV or in the newspapers, but like it really didn't get much of of anything of like what it deserved, you know. So I think going back to these stories that kind of just like popped up and got swept under the rug, I think it's good to to talk about that shit.
even though it's old. It's nice to, you know, I, I think when we see, like, they were doing this 30 years ago, what the fuck do you think they're doing now? Yeah, and I mean, it, <laughs> they never got punished for it. In fact, I mean, Franklin, it was absolutely insane and in that and they had a grand jury impaneled and all of the, pretty much all the child abusers were completely let off the hook. They wrote a very disinformational grand jury report saying all these people were innocent, they were falsely accused, this whole thing was a carefully crafted hoax, and then they actually indicted yeah. two of the victims for per perjury because they wouldn't recant their stories and sent one of them, Alicia Owen, to prison for nearly 10 years. That was so this horrible, is, I mean, you, horrible. Yeah, if they can do that and, you know, absolutely twist reality, turn it on its head, and punish p kids who are brave enough to come forward, you know, why would you think they're going to stop? It's only going to get worse and worse because now they've proven that this can be covered up and you can completely invert the reality of what happened. And I think that it unfortunately has kept on going and it will keep on going until you can, you know, real make people realize the extent of this darkness and have them come to terms with it. You know, it's wild. Amber Heard lies and she gets a $10 million fine that she'll probably never pay. And this chick lies and she gets 10 years in jail. But, but she didn't lie. But they were saying she lied. Right. Yeah, yeah I mean. What the fuck? It, it's ridiculous. I mean, they want, they needed to make an example out of Alicia. And as well, you know, they also had the other kid, Paul Benassi, on perjury charges. You know, just after they barely managed to convict Alicia Owen, they suddenly dropped the charges against Benassi. And they say, oh, you know. We don't need to try him anymore, but you know, Benassi was saying all the same things that Alicia Owen was, that he had the same, very much overlapping perjury charges. The grand jury said he was the most pathetic witness, so you'd think it would be even easier to convict him than it would be to convict Alicia Owen, but it seems that you know they weren't going to—it was already hard enough to convict Alicia Owen. They originally had some jurors who were holding out and not wanting to convict, so— they only got her by the skin of her teeth. They were not going to roll the dice a second time with Manasi, but that goes to show that this was never actually about you know, some sort of justice, about punishing people who lied. It was all about sending a message to kids saying, you tell the truth about your abuse. This is what will happen to you. We can put you in jail, and we'll go on living our lives. And uh, it is absolutely sickening. And now, wasn't there a uh, another kid... I, I know when we covered the Franklin cover-up, I think there was three people that we used. And didn't he, like, his brother die and then he died? Yeah, that was uh, Troy Bonner. That was yes. a really sad story. You know, Troy Bonner was one of, I mean, he was a, a friend of Alicia Owens uh, in this ring as well. He was another victim. And at the initially he and Alicia and also their friend Danny King all came forward and you know told their story to the investigator Gary Caridori, and ultimately the FBI, the Omaha FBI, started bringing the pressure down on all these people to recant. And Troy Bonner and Danny King both succumbed to that. They recanted their stories of abuse. They said that the investigator Gary Caridori had just fed them a story to say, and you know this is absolutely not true. Nick Bryant's book shows very clearly why this is false. They tell a version of events. Oh shit! What happened? You all right? Yeah, no, I'm I'm good. Oh, they, uh, I, know. I thought I heard something fall, and then it went silent. I was like, "Wait, this guy's mic just fall over? He fall out of his chair?" I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm I'm good over here. I was like, "Shit!" No, I thought I heard a bang, and I was like, "Well, like something pop," and I was like, "Fuck! This guy's mic just popped or broke." <laughs> yeah. Well. <laughs> yeah. I mean. Anyway, yeah. So Troy Bonner. Uh, 
you know, and Danny King, you know, for example, claimed that there was a phone call that Alicia Owen had, uh, you know, that Alicia Owen had made that, uh, you know, telling them the story, you know, telling him about the story of the hoax. And there was, they had phone records for the jail where Alicia Owen was incarcerated. There was no record of the phone call. They, uh, then supposedly Troy Bonner told the story to Danny King at a bar at a hotel that didn't even have a bar. So you know, basically, Whoa. obviously, that they made a, they had a story that was completely made up, you know, of how this hoax got started. But yeah, Troy Bonner ultimately started having second thoughts about his recantation, tried to come forward again, and as soon as he did that, his uh, with having those thoughts, his brother Sean Bonner, his older brother, died in a suspicious game of Russian roulette at a, you know, housing right by Offutt Air Force Base. Uh, Offutt being, the Offutt Air Force Base itself is in, link, is implicated as a part of the Franklin Network where certain kids were being subjected to oh, mind-control type experiments. And an airman at Offutt Air Force Base had supplied the gun that was, you know, resulted in Sean Bonner's death. Is that the same Air Force base that there's kids making accusations that like have like left there from I think the daycare and gone to Michael Aquino's house outside of the base? Have you so you're thinking days? you're thinking of Presidio in California, oh, okay. but yes. however, uh, there is somewhat of a connection. You know, at least according to Paul Benassi, one of the Franklin victims, Paul Benassi did say that he was subjected to experimentation at Offit, you know, and that Michael Aquino was one of the people who, you know, his so-called programmers, you know, for these mm-hmm. mind control projects. And he also, Benassi also did claim that he was taken to the Presidio base, that he was taken to Aquino's house, and he was also able to describe the house uh, of Aquino relatively accurately. So it does appear that there is a, con- a likely connection between Presidio and Offit with these kinds of operations. Gotcha, gotcha. Do you think... Uh... I mean, I know some people have thought that maybe out of all three of those people, Troy might have been like kind of the most maybe fantastical or bullshit, I guess. Um, well, I think most most of the time, I think people thought that Paul Benassi was the most fantastical because he was talking about being a victim, you know, being in a snuff film. He was talking about he was one of the people who well, implicated I've heard people some now. Troy because of drug use. That's why. Well, yeah, yeah. I mean, Troy was. I mean, yeah, Troy and I mean, the problem is that a lot of these victims were, you know, but just by the nature of their abuse, what they get lured into, it kind of leads to them being discredited, which is the, you know, saddest part of all that they often only get turned on to drugs or get into this sort of under, you know, underworld, you know, get, you know, Paul Benassi, for example, he, you know, and later ended up being arrested for molesting a, uh, a cousin, a cousin of his, and obviously there's no condoning or defending that, but you have to think about how somebody, a little kid who has been abused pretty much since childhood, who gets to thinking that this kind of stuff is normal, almost, you know, that you have to think about how that'll screw up someone's head. And so a lot of these kids, as a result of their trauma, later end up becoming, you know, criminals themselves, you know, or doing things that give them, you know, reasons why you can say, well, their memories are not that good or you know, their mental state is imbalanced, you know, Paul Benassi having dissociative identity disorder. And so it becomes the rationale not to trust them when, in fact, the fact, you know, they're suffering this trauma and exhibiting these signs honestly lends credence to the story that they have suffered a horrible degree of abuse. Oh, well, I mean, in my opinion, like these 
what happens, these sick fucks, if they were to find a kid and they already had a drug problem, they'd be like, oh, that's even a plus. Because now we have yeah. to supply them drugs. Or just going through this stuff and dealing with what's going on in your head, I would see drug addiction being a side effect of just the wrong choice of how to deal with that. So, like, right, I, I would is. see, like, the drugs really getting into the situation or after the situation would just be a, a common possibility. Yeah, it is It is both. I mean, yeah, kids who have those problems can very easily get lured into, you know, into it. And, you know, some of these, you know, abusers like, you know, Alan Bayer, for example, you know, they would, you know, give these kids some amount of money for, you know, sexually servicing them. And so... You know, some, if they already had these dependencies, they might think, oh, this is a great way to, you know, f- fulfill that. But, you know, it really is just ripping out more and more of their soul. And that's just, you know, really sick to see how these kids just get exploited. And, you know, then ultimately the, the their exploitation is what supposedly turns them into non-credible witnesses. So then people have an excuse not to listen to them it, it's like, oh, look at these pillars of the community, these respectable businessmen like Alan Bayer or Harold Anderson, the newspaper publisher in Omaha, or Gene Mahoney, the parks commissioner, Robert Wobbin, the police chief, all these people. And you know, like, how could you believe this damaged kid, this drug addicted or you know, mentally ill kid over this you know, obviously respectable man, but you know, it's not that it doesn't work that way. It, the kids are, you know, end up the way they are because of these quote unquote respectable people doing the <laughs> sickest things imaginable. Yeah. yeah. The only reason I had asked about Troy, um, cause I know a lot of people I had, well, when I was looking into the Franklin scandal, uh, I think we did, I think I included Troy's stuff as well, but at first I was a little iffy because I know a lot of people wanted to kind of blow him <laughs> off about, you know, cause of drug use and stuff. But, uh, the fact of like him and his brother, like you even said, I mean, that that just, I don't know. I mean, is that all coincidental? But, I mean, that just seems kind of fucking shady to me. That that I mean, I well. find it, I do find it hard to believe that it is. And, I mean, ultimately, the strength And would you say they were playing from, fucking Russian roulette on a fucking army base? Yeah, yeah, that was, it was a very weird story. It's fucking Christopher yeah, walking in there flipping the fucking gun. I know. It, if you, there is a an interview that, uh, I think the guy's name was Michael Brownell, who was actually at the scene when this happened. Uh, a man named David Scherter did an interview with him on the Opperman Report. And uh, basically, yeah, there was some very suspicious conduct at that, you know, behind the nature of how Sean Bonner ended up getting shot in this game of Russian roulette to the point where it appears to have been, you know, somewhat orchestrated that he would end up in that you know in that situation getting shot you know, so i think that there is absolutely something fishy about sean's death and troy and all this family per the affidavit and affidavits of family members if i recall correctly certainly did take what happened to sean as a you know sign you know the worrying sign of what would happen if troy undid his recantation and came forward and you know, ultimately that's the tragic thing too that troy did at one point he was going to show up at alicia owen's appeal to testify, I lied in her trial and hopefully help get her a new trial because he was one of the main witnesses against her. And then he he was a no-show. He basically vanished for the next 10 years. And then he also turns up dead in this hospital in Texas, also you know, in very suspicious circumstances, just having some sudden you know bleeding episode or what, whatever. And you know he's just dead as well. So I, I do think there is that is unfortunately the fate that 
befalls many of these victims if they try to say too much about yeah. what they experienced. For sure. No, I definitely think, uh, I mean, even when we cover the Franklin scandal, I mean, we, we, I think, I don't know how many parts we did, like maybe three. I don't know, but we probably could have done like at least probably double what we put out, but it was just like, you know, how far off do we want to go with this? But there is so much shit that like seems like that spider web comes out of that. And um, I guess one of them, one of the things that I stumbled upon why looking into that is Johnny Gosh. And uh, I, that is why that was the main reason why you're coming on. I'm sorry I got you dragged off with all the other stuff. But um, first, by the way, uh, yeah, you did plug uh, your stuff. Your links are in the bottom. So if people want to go check out his stuff, it's, I did add some of his links in the bottom already. Forgot to mention that in the beginning. But uh, if you want to now, if you want to try to get back to where we were supposed to go with like Johnny Gosh. Um, and maybe explain yeah. a little bit of Johnny Gosh to people who may not fully understand. And like, I'm even sure what I think I know about Johnny Gosh probably isn't like much of of what you could explain right now too so sure yeah basically the reason why johnny gosh comes up in connection with franklin is because as i mentioned paul benassi one of the victims of franklin while he was while he was incarcerated and you know he had his lawyer john DeCamp, he ultimately he made he had made some sort of statement at one point uh in some interviews and i believe psychiatric interview saying that he had there was some incident he was involved in with this newspaper carrier in Des Moines, Iowa, and uh, in about 1982, and you know, John DeCamp looked into this and found, oh wow, there was uh, something that happened with the Des Moines newspaper carrier in 1982, and that was the abduction of Johnny Gosh. And so Paul Benassi ultimately was checked out for the story, and uh, Johnny Gosh's parents and the investigators who evaluated the story did find a fair amount of evidence for Paul Benassi being truthful about that and indicating that there was a connection between Johnny and the Franklin network. But to back it up uh, about, you know, it was about nearly 10 years before Benassi came forward and go through the history of the Johnny Gosh abduction, that in and of itself is somewhat illuminating and point even before Benassi came forward, there are signs pointing to Johnny being taken into human trafficking. Uh, so Johnny Gosh was a 12 year old, a newspaper carrier in West Des Moines, Iowa, delivered newspapers every Sunday morning for the Des Moines Register. He was he was universally described as you know a great kid, you know friendly to ev- you know friendly to everyone, willing to defend his neighbors from bullies. Uh, there were many accounts that people you know from around the neighborhood gave you know to Noreen, like I remember your son like this. So he was a uh, he, he was a great kid, and he uh, he had gotten his job at a, at a paper route about 13 months prior to his abduction so that he could get his, uh, he could make enough money to get a dirt bike that he really wanted. So he'd been doing this for about a year. And up until that point, uh, basically he would go out in the early morning, pick up papers at a drop spot and then deliver them around his neighborhood every Sunday morning, you know, up till the, up till the point of his abduction, he had his father, uh, his father, Leonard John Gosh, or John Gosh Sr., as sometimes called, you know, go uh, go with him, accompany him, because it was early morning, and Johnny was only 11 to 12 years old throughout this time. And where did you see so, this happen again? This was West Des Moines, Iowa. Oh, all right. I was, you know, he's, he's real bugged out. This is fucking, this is where my mind goes. For some reason, I was thinking Illinois is a Chicago. <laughs> so I looked up the fucking game Paperboy, and it came out in 1985, and I was like, where was the company that made the game? 
and uh, it was in Chicago, Illinois. <laughs> uh, I mean, there were you know other throughout the throughout the Midwest. Made me think I of mean, that fucking video game Paintball Boy for a second. I was like, that game's old as fuck. When did that come out? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I would think that at that time, you know, the notion of a paper boy was kind of on the decline just after these publicized incidents. You know, it certainly would not last much longer uh, for a while because people were starting to become aware of the dangers that some, that some of these kids were facing. But yeah, back in 1982, it certainly was a normal thing to be happening, and not just in. Des Moines throughout the you know, throughout the U.S. and certainly in many places in the in the Midwest. So yeah, Johnny was delivering these papers for you know delivering these papers for over a year, making good money, had a perfect service record, and he's uh, on the day before his kidnapping. That would have been September fourth, nineteen eighty two. So you know just so people know, we're actually coming up on this Monday on the fortieth anniversary of when Johnny was kidnapped. Uh, but yeah, Johnny on the sun on the uh, Sunday before his abduction, the, or the the Saturday night before the, his abduction, he you know asked his parents, "Hey, can I do the paper out by myself? I think I'm old enough." And Johnny's father initially said, "Oh yeah, okay, sure." And then Noreen, his mother, was basically like, "No, our agreement was always that you." Do the you know that you do it when you're accompanied by your dad, and you know that's that's we're gonna stick to that. So Johnny was like, okay, went to bed, came back down, you know, a little bit later, gave his you know mom another hug, said you're the best, and unfortunately the next day, September 5th, 1982, that morning, Johnny Gosh set out on his own, didn't wake up his uh, did not wake up his mom his dad, just went out. Uh, throughout did the route by himself and so there are witness accounts from that morning gathered by police and and all, I mean before the police were even on the scene gathered by Noreen herself who had taken the initiative to call up all these witnesses and realize what happened after she found out that Johnny had been kidnapped basically the witness accounts paint this sort of picture that around like right before 6 a.m. you know a couple minutes before 6 a.m. Johnny basically got his wagon that he would use to carry the papers, and he pulled the wagon through the backyard of his house, past a, basically past a church, and also past another neighbor's house who ended up hearing Johnny at that time pulling the wagon, and so Johnny ended up on, uh, basically ended up on Ashworth Road, and so Johnny started walking, uh, started walking east on Ashworth Road. Uh, toward the intersection of Ashworth Road and 42nd Street, which was a north-south street uh, cutting through it. And this was the location where the paper drop was, uh, you know, where the papers would be delivered for the paper boys to pick them up and then go to their you know, respective locations and start delivering them to the, all the houses. So as Johnny was walking up Ashworth Road, there was a, a weird you know, blue car you know, started driving by Johnny. And, uh, you know, basically, you know, started, you know, seemed like it was trying to get a good look at this kid who was walking there. And once it, you know, sort of noticed Johnny, it then basically, you know, turn, it pretty much then, you know, turned around and, you know, doubled back on itself so that it could end up at the corner of 42nd and Ashworth Road where Johnny arrived to get his papers and where there were a couple other paper boys as well, one by the name of Mike Seskis. Another, there was also an adult man, a lawyer, 
by the name of John Rossi, who was picking up papers on behalf of his son to deliver. Yeah, I mean, it's also it'll get confusing when we talk about Gacy because there's another guy named Rossi from the John Wayne Gacy case. Okay, my bad. Yeah, it's it's all good. Uh, I mean, it does get confusing sometimes, especially dealing with all happening in the Midwest, not too far from each other. So you're going to run into some of these names again and again. But yeah, John Rossi, the local lawyer, was there at the paper drop spot. Mike Seskith was there, and basically these both of these witnesses observe this guy in the blue car come over to the paper drop location and approach the kids who are there and you know sort of ask them for directions on how to get to some location and there was you know just something about the demeanor of this guy that really weirded the people out especially weirded Johnny out and he started having these second thoughts and was like I, I want to get out of here and uh, this guy this person in the blue car was described as sort of heavy set you know, I guess average height, you know, 5'9", Latino-looking guy, you know, dark skin, black hair, mustache, uh, and also described as having some sort of, you know, weird item on the seat of the passenger seat of his car, which almost appeared to be a kind of manila envelope, possibly, which is also interesting later in retrospect. But, you know, this guy, after getting directions from these paper boys at the scene, he you know, sort of he appeared to drive away, you know, appeared to keep on driving on you know, keep on driving east on Ashworth past the past the paper drop location. And so Johnny decided to set out on his own. But uh, you know, he, so Johnny started walking north up forty second street to get to the intersection of forty second and and Marcourt Lane, which was where he began his paper deliveries. Now before this guy in the blue car drove away, he flicked his dome lights three times in succession. And right around, the, as soon as that started happening, as soon as he flicked those dome lights, this other individual came out of the shadows on 42nd Street, like out from between two houses, sort of among the foliage, and began following behind Johnny at a, at a distance. And so Johnny was walking, he was walking down 42nd Street, not knowing that this man, this uh, who Mike Seska saw and was described as a very tall man, was following Johnny down the road. So Johnny ended up turning on to turning onto Forty Second Street, and at that point there was another group of paper boys, the or the Bozen brothers, Kevin and Mark Bozen, who saw Johnny as they were passing. They were going up Forty Second Street. They passed Marquardt Lane. They saw Johnny on his wagon, uh, you know, and he appeared to be, you know, slumped over for whatever reason, as they almost as if he was sick. And then after that, there's a, a witness right on Marcourt Lane by the name of PJ Smith, who saw, you know, basically looks out his window, and they, there are a couple different accounts about what PJ Smith saw, which also is kind of interesting. Initially, it was reported that PJ Smith, you know, looked out his window, you know, he heard a car door, you know, heard a car door slam, and then you know, looked out, saw a car driving away. Basically, the car, a car drove out on Marcourt, on, drove out of Marcourt Lane and then turned left, which would take them north on 42nd Street towards the interstate, and which at that point they would have been able to get, you know, out of, out of town as far away as they needed to. So later on, they actually 
uh, came out, according to Noreen, that P.J. Smith had seen even more, that P.J. Smith had actually seen the entire abduction take place, had actually looked out the window, saw Johnny being forced into the into that car, that same blue car, before it sped away, but at least, and then that he was intimidated by police to uh, change his story about that, but at least at that point, back in 1982, the early 80s, the only witness account was that P.J. Smith saw the aftermath, saw the car driving away and peeling peeling out, running a stoplight and going north on 42nd towards the interstate. So, you know, Johnny, you know, and at that point, Johnny's wagon is just left behind on Markport and uh, Johnny is nowhere to be found. You know, he's completely vanished. His papers are still there. The doctioned who he came with is uh, was also just there and it ended up running away back to the Bosch home, which was about a block away. And so Johnny's parents were did they yes, end up finding up. that there? Sorry to interrupt you real quick. It's just something finding what? Did they end up like? Did they? Can they cooperate? Like, did they actually found like the uh, the newspapers and his wagon like there too? Like when they were investigating? Yeah, yeah. That's that's oh. all they found. You know, basically. Oh, okay. So they even did find that in the spot that you know in the story that you're telling me now. Yeah, because basically what had happened was you know all these customers were phoning the Gosh parents and being like, "Why didn't I get my paper?" And so <laughs> John, uh, Johnny's dad, you know, set out and uh, he went to he basically went to the spot you know where Johnny would find the deliveries, found Johnny's wagon, and you know, oh, parent reportedly went went back home, uh, went back home and called you know basically told Noreen, you know, Johnny is missing, call the police. And then Johnny's dad went out and started, you know, delivering the rest of the Johnny's papers. So, so basically Noreen called the police, said, you know, my son is, my son is missing. And according Noreen and, and, and Leonard John Gosh both say this, that the police really didn't seem to care all that much. It took them 45 minutes to even show up wow. at the house uh, so in the meantime, Noreen herself started calling the various, called the paper company, got names of the people who were there at the paper drop location at 42nd and Ashworth and got their names and started contacting them, getting statements from people like John Rossi and Mike Seskis about what had occurred that morning. So already got a sense of what John, what happened to Johnny about the suspicious man who was approached him at the paper drop in the blue car and then the other man who started following Johnny down the road, but you know, the police, when they finally did arrive, they basically, the first question they asked was, well, has your son ever run away before? They really seemed intent on treating it as if Johnny had just run away, that there was no abduction at all. And in light of the accounts of people like John Rossi and Mike Seskis about two suspicious men clearly being involved with Johnny right before he was right before he vanished and also having this mysterious blue car that was seen approaching Johnny be peeling out from the exact spot where Johnny's wagon was found and Johnny is nowhere in sight. It seems rather unbelievable that they didn't view this as a kidnapping because that's obviously what it pointed to. But the police basically kept maintaining and really continue to maintain even to this day that there is no evidence that Johnny was actually kidnapped. They still treated as a missing person, not as a kidnapping, which is just oh, this maddening. Kid ran away. Yeah, they, they still try to or they at least say, well we can't rule it out this kid that Johnny just ran away, which is absurd. I mean there Johnny had no history of that. 
and putting all the facts together, it's really hard to conclude anything other than that Johnny was kidnapped. But the police, for whatever reason, were maintaining that uh, Johnny was just a, or that Johnny might have just been a runaway. In fact, according to Noreen, the police chief, a man named Orville Cooney, who not long before Johnny's abduction, Orville Cooney had been called out by his police department for all sorts of corruption, all sorts of members of his, the West Des Moines Police Department are saying, you know, this guy is drinking on the job. He's, you know, there are police brutality complaints against him, you know, beating up, beating up suspects that he apparently fixed some tickets on behalf of his son to get his son out of trouble. You know, that Orville Cooney was very reviled by the police department up until that point. At least a lot of members of the West Des Moines Police Department, he appeared to be a very imbalanced man and he later would be, uh, he later, basically he would, after he left the police department, he would be found shoplifting from Target in 1987. He shoplifted these, like, these screw hooks and uh, also some blank videotapes for whatever reason from a Target store. But basically Orville Cooney, according to Doreen, basically on the day that Johnny was kidnapped when search parties were going out, Orville Cooney got on top of a picnic table and basically yelled, you know, go home, everyone. The kid's just a damn runaway. He was apparently drunk at the time. So this is the police chief. This is the guy who's in charge of the police department, basically tell, you know, setting the tone of don't care about this kid. So, I mean, Noreen quickly realized the tone of, that the investigation was going to take and began looking for private investigators of her own. The Gosh family hired some PIs who started following various leads of, around the neighborhood. They started canvassing the neighborhood and, you know, getting all these witnesses to speak and not just, you know, the witnesses of the paper drop. They fanned out across the neighborhood and also got managed to get other people who had seen suspicious things that morning, even, you know, several blocks away who you might not think to connect to the kidnapping, but just seeing if anyone in the area saw anything weird and that did turn up some interesting things that we'll get into a bit later when we get to the Paul Benassi story because that you know some of what they found was uh, stuff that Paul Benassi corroborated even though they had never publicized it at the time but essentially yeah, Noreen and her you husband know, that was started one thing, that's one thing I do want to say about, about Paul Benassi is that uh, you know I think if people were to like listen to like his testimonies he's very like fucking detailed yeah, that's uh, one thing that really stands out. And, you know, Paul Troy Bomber was a little bit, I think. Like, he was like, oh, in the corner of this, and that's across the street. Like, he visually, like, could see where they were talking about. That's how, like, descriptive to me they were. Like, they were right. actually picturing this place, like, in their mind, because they were talking about everything around them. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that, I mean, Paul Benoffi in particular gets a bad rap for not being a credible witness, even though the level of detail that he can say about these cases is pretty, you know, pretty extraordinary. And he also is willing to say, well, I don't know if he got the question about something yeah, he, he's he not sure Yeah, he did say of. that a lot, actually. If he doesn't know, he just says, I, I don't know. Yeah, which I think, I mean, that I think that makes sense. And ultimately, you know, as we'll get into, you can just see the very, you know, the facts of the case and the things that Benassi knew that he would have had no reasonable way of knowing unless he really was involved because this was stuff that was found by the Goshes in their investigation and then never released to the media, and yet here Benassi is knowing all of this stuff. But you know, back at that time, back in when everything was just starting out, you know, the Goshes didn't really know where to turn. They had all sorts of potential leads that could 
follow. I mean, they had you know tip lines and people would call in, and you know sometimes they would give valuable information, but a lot of times it would just be a crank or even worse. Sometimes people who just wanted to torment the family. There were a lot of sickos out there who would just like call the goshes and say your son's dead, and then start laughing at them and hang up. That's which, you know, it's hard to imagine, but that is what they had to endure. But so, I mean, sorting out the, the wheat from the chaff of the leads that they were getting was obviously become essential. And that's what their private investigators were responsible for doing for the next several years. So actually a couple months after Johnny is kidnapped, there is a sighting of Johnny, what would appear to be a very likely sighting of Johnny in Oklahoma, where basically this woman ends up having this, she sees this kid who's about, you know, 13, looks about 13 years old in her estimation. The kid runs up to her and says, help me, I'm John David Gosh. And then suddenly these uh, two men come and just start dragging this kid away. So this woman, understandably, is like, what the hell? And she reports this to, uh, to the police, the local police in Oklahoma, and they say, oh, this is probably just a family situation. So, I mean, that seems a bit weird, but whatever. This woman, this woman, you know, moves on. She just, she's like, "I did my duty. I reported it." And At she that ends time, up. Was his? It was his disappearance, kind of like known, like it world, was like a like nationwide. Because, like, I, I, you know, not to give them any excuse, but back then, someone missing somewhere else may not show up in their system. You know what yeah, saying? I mean, I, I mean, I would say that it probably was not. I don't know if it was super well known at the time. You know, just there was yeah. less. I mean, less sort of connectedness, and the West Des Moines Police Department was already not great about putting Johnny into the NCIC database in the first place, according to Noreen. So I'm not actually sure whether okay, the police right. department in Oklahoma, there in Oklahoma, knew about Johnny. I do. It is somewhat strange that they would immediately take that as well as just domestic. Thing, no need to you know worry about it at all. Oh yeah, but, no, you know, I still think that's weird too. But I I thought maybe they might have like known at least from the TV, but maybe they didn't. Yeah, well, well, I would. Well, it's important to note at that point, no one actually rec- made the connection that this was a missing kid. The woman did not. You know, it's actually only oh, later okay. where. So later on, you know, the woman. I mean, if she hears the name John David Gosh and you know doesn't know what that means. She doesn't, at that point in 1983, there's not really a means of looking that up and seeing it. If you haven't heard it, yeah. you haven't heard it, and yeah. it doesn't mean anything to you. But later that year, this woman was watching a documentary about the Adam Walsh case, and this uh, documentary at one point talked about a lot of other missing kids in the country as well, and one of them was Johnny Gosh. And as soon as you know Johnny Gosh and the picture and the name came up on screen, this woman was like, oh shit, I know this kid i saw this kid he was the one who was dragged away by these two men i saw and so she re-reported it to police and this time was like this kid i saw was a missing kid and at that point the report finally made its way to the gauchist private investigators there was some firm out of chicago the investigative research agency who was working for them at the time and the the investigative research agency the gosh pi checked out this lead they actually checked it out in conjunction with the fbi and both the PIs and the FBI came to the conclusion that this was a genuine sighting of Johnny Gosh. So already six months after Johnny is taken, you have evidence that Johnny is still alive in another state. And already you have to think about that. And 
realize, well, what does this point to as the most likely scenario for why Johnny was abducted and what kind of entity might have abducted him? You know, a lot of people are inclined to say, well, Johnny was probably just taken by some lone pervert and killed immediately. And, you know, it's one to some extent, you know, if you go off the statistics of what happens to missing children, you know, this does unfortunately seem to be a common end for many of these kids. And so it can seem on the surface, you know, logical to think that way, but you can't just, you can't just take a statistic of, you know, an overall statistic about these cases and try to apply it to every single case. If you have evidence from the case that directly contradicts that. And in this case, you know, it clearly appears that Johnny was not killed immediately. And if he wasn't killed immediately, but he was still somehow in captivity, you know, having these men, these suspicious men drag him away, what that almost certainly on its own starts to point to a human trafficking type of conclusion. So even at that point early on, it appeared very likely that Johnny was taken into uh, taken into some kind of child trafficking network, and that was the underlying cause of his abduction. And later on in 1985, there's another one of these, you know, sort of proofs of life, as I call them, where there was a dollar bill that was found circulating in uh, western Iowa, around Sioux City, Iowa. It had a message written on it that said, I am alive, and then signed Johnny Gosh. And the dollar bill made its way to the Goshes, who ended up hiring some handwriting experts, three handwriting experts, to look at the writing on the bill, compare it against known exemplars of Johnny's own handwriting, and they all came to the conclusion that this really was Johnny's handwriting. So it's another compelling sign oh, that Johnny was, that. yeah, that Johnny was still out there, still alive, and was trying to get any sort of message that he could out there. So uh, certainly, just looking at the evidence even before Paul Bonassi comes on the scene, there is some good reason to believe that Johnny Gosh was a victim of child trafficking. And the other major dimension of that is the emergence of a very suspicious figure on the scene by the name of Sam Soda. Sam Soda was a private investigator in Des Moines, and sometime in uh, like early to mid-1984, Sam Soda essentially tried to insert himself into the Johnny Gosh investigation. You tried to call in the Goshes and offer information, try to you know have them you know enlist him to do work for them. So essentially, according to Noreen, and she's told the story relatively consistently from 1988 onward. Again, 1988 is even before Paul Benassi came forward. So according to Noreen, this guy, you know, Sam Soda, called her into his office one day on. Uh, it was in mid-June of 1984, and he actually tells Noreen that there is going to be another kidnapping of another paper boy, this time on the south side of Des Moines, and that it was going to take place in the second weekend in August. And Noreen, Sam Thode even allowed Noreen to tape her, to tape her as she said this for whatever reason, as he said this for whatever reason, and so... The spookiest thing about this is that ultimately Sam Soda's prediction came to pass that on the second weekend in August, another paper boy named Eugene Martin also worked for the Des Moines Register, also had a very, was similar age to Johnny. He was, like, he was 13 years old. He was similar physical description to Johnny, you know, same sort of, you know, hair color, you know, look alike in terms of, you know, hair color and general physical appearance. He, Eugene Martin, was also 
taken under you know cover of early morning darkness and just you know pretty much completely vanished. So you basically had another parallel case to Johnny's, another paperboy vanishing in very similar circumstances happening uh, exactly when this guy Sam Soda predicted it would. And up before the mm-hmm. kidnapping of Eugene, Noreen was trying to tell the police about this, and they basically didn't care. They even they refused to listen to the tape recording that she made of Sam Soda for whatever reason. So obvious question, who is Sam Soda, and what the hell is he up to? Well... Sam Soda, well, Sam Soda has a very interesting history in that he, around this time in you know the late around like September of 1984, he tried he incorporated this organization called Stolen Children Are Reported Every Day, or just Scared for short, which supposedly was trying to be this uh, you know advocacy group informing citizens about you know the risks of human trafficking, the risks of child pornography, and uh, supposedly was doing a good civic service for the community. But what's weird about it is that at his conferences, Sam Soda was actually showing real child pornography to his audiences. And right in front of everyone, Even there were even Des Moines police in his audience that he was showing the child pornography to. And yet somehow he was getting away with it scot-free. You know, he actually, uh, the the first assistant county attorney a uh, man by the name of Ron Wheeler had actually you know pretty basically not only did nothing about it but according to Sam Sam would later go on a podcast in 2018 about the Johnny Gosh case and say oh yeah I, this guy the Ron Wheeler called me into into his office and he said I should tell you to stop showing child pornography but instead I'm giving you my blessing to continue so again I mean what what the fuck why is why is this guy Sam Soda able to show child pornography right in front of police officers that is clearly illegal and be protected by the local county attorney's office for doing this? And also, how are they able to get this child pornography in the first place? What kind of connections does he have? Well, Sam Soda, you know, as Noreen and her husband at the time would find out, Sam Soda did have a lot of interesting connections that I've personally, you know, corroborated this as well from people who knew Sam Soda, that Sam Soda had mafia connections. He was uh, associated with Johnny Johnny Farrell and that whole crew in Des Moines, on the south side of Des Moines. He also had these law enforcement connections throughout the country. He did work for the Ruan Trucking Company out of Des Moines, which uh, Ruan, it employed some interesting people, like uh, they employed this guy, Larry Miller, uh, Larry Miller was the president of Ruan. He had a history of studying at the military intelligence school in Washington, D.C. And by the way, Ruan's, uh, Ruan is based at Adre- at street number 666 in Des Moines, curiously enough. Wow. But yeah, yeah. So this these are just some of the uh, connections that Sam Soda had. And he, he was able to get away with showing child pornography in public and... Uh, you know, which is obviously shocking. Then later that year, uh, Sam Soda also, he supposedly he exposes some guy, uh, this pedophile who works for the Des Moines Register uh, as a pap- an adult paper carrier by the name of Frank Sakura. And he basically, you know, he gets Sakura, somehow gets Sakura to confess on tape that he molested a ton of paper, they molested a ton of paper boys. And, as for how Sam was able to get this guy to admit to something awful like that willingly on tape, uh, 
is not really easy to understand. And Frank mm-hmm. Sikora would later say that Sam had actually lied. You know, it impersonated a, a, a Iowa Department of Criminal Investigations agent. You know, impersonated a state police agent and uh, basically coerced him into giving this statement. And Sam Soda would maintain, oh, that's not true. I had another journalist in the room with me who, you know, checked everything I was doing and made sure I was honest, but turns out the journalist uh, was later spoken to, and the journalist actually contradicted Sam Soda and said I was not in the room with him. So once again, there's a sign of some funny business where Sam, he's able to find this random pedophile who works for the register that no one has ever heard of before. And then he's able to pass them off. He tries to pass off Frank Sakura as, you know, sort of as a suspect in Johnny's abduction, even though Frank Sakura turns out, you know, really has no discernible connection that can be found to Johnny's abduction other than just happening to be a pedophile at the Des Moines register, you know, at the newspaper. So say Sam Soda that appears to be involved in trying to set up another, you know, set up this false suspect and, uh, by the way, mysteriously, Frank Sikora, initially, he pleads not guilty. Then, like a month later, there's a mysterious fire that breaks out at Sikora's apartment. It's literally called in newspaper articles a, quote, fire of suspicious origin that breaks out at Sikora's address. And then uh, shortly thereafter, Frank Sikora just pleads guilty and silently goes away, and the whole thing gets buried. So you know, a lot of weird stuff going on with Sam, You know, his ability to get child pornography, the ability to be protected for sharing child pornography, Sam Soda's underworld connections, Sam Soda's apparent knowledge to some extent of the Des Moines pedophile underworld, the fact that he's able to find this pedo at the Des Moines Register and you know, try to push them forward to the Johnny Gosh abduction and Eugene Martin abduction suspect, and also obviously his foreknowledge of Eugene Martin's kidnapping before it happened. So all this stuff was very, very suspicious to Noreen Gosh and you know, her husband at the time, Leonard John Gosh. And so they viewed Sam Soda as a very, you know, as a prime suspect in Johnny's kidnapping for a while. So already they were starting to hone in on this guy and feel that he was very much a suspicious figure in the case. And, uh, you know, the sort of, you know, sort of laid dormant, you know, that they, tr- they tried to investigate Sam Soda and actually around 1986, when they were trying to investigate Sam and you know, intensifying their heat on him, the Goshes started getting threats to their house. They would have people who would you know, call them in the middle of the night, and then later on, you know, people would, soon after the calls, people would come by the house, throw rocks at their house. They would get overt threats over the phone, you know, people you know, threatening them, threatening their families. They would... Uh, you know, on, and then it culminated in a really bizarre thing where Noreen Gosh was essentially you know, was being lured to a meeting in Tulsa, Oklahoma with some guy who claimed to have knowledge of Johnny's abduction and he basically said meet me in Tulsa meet me at this hotel and I'll give you information and then almost immediately after Noreen got the call the police department gets the call saying Noreen has a hit has been placed on Noreen she's being lured into a trap and ultimately this they sent they sent someone in Noreen's place you know a police officer deposes her and then they arrested this guy who was trying to meet with Noreen and he there's a guy named uh forget the exact name of this guy at the moment, but he basically said that he tried to say that he had uh, information on, oh yeah, sorry, the guy's name was David James Schultz, initially of Syracuse, New York, and David James Schultz claimed to have information on a crime that involved organized crime figures and federal agents, but his claims about that were dismissed, so you have another guy who appears to be somewhat linked to organized crime circles who is 
trying to lure Noreen into a trap, and this happened as soon as she started intensifying the heat on Sam Soda. So, you know, already, and this is, you know, years before Paul Nassi comes forward, just between all these things, between the proofs of life about Johnny indicating that he's been taken into trafficking between Sam Soda, you have all these indications that something is not right about what happened with Johnny. You know, there's some some kind of organized network, some kind of organized pedophile network that is active in Des Moines, but clearly able to pull its weight elsewhere as well, that is able to, you know, seemingly motivated to get away with what's going on. And uh, that was the sort of realization that Noreen and her husband had, but they couldn't quite put the pieces together. And then Paul Bonassi comes forward and really breaks open the case for them. Damn, there you go. That was like a really uh, fucking detailed shit right there. <laughs> Fuck. Yeah, no, like, that's I... Like some, I like, real fucking wild spider web I've just ran. Fuck, that's crazy. Yeah, and, and you know, honestly, this is something that I feel like, you know, a lot of people, when you hear about Johnny Gosh's connection to Franklin, you know, if, if you only hear the side of, well, Paul Benassi told this story, it's can be easy for people to just say, well, why do I believe Paul Benassi? But it's very important, in my view, to get the whole background about what was happening with Johnny in Des Moines, West Des Moines and Des Moines area beforehand, because that really, you know, shows you the extent to which there already were signs of a human trafficking ring being involved, even before that, and that Paul Benassi really just fills in the blanks of a story that the Goshes were already onto previously. Uh, when when Paul Benassi does come forward, he he comes forward in uh, sometime in the year 1990, and you know John DeCamp, his lawyer, you know once he realizes a possible connection to Johnny Gosh, he contacts the Gosh home, and he tells basically you know he tries he says hey I have a client who's in prison here in Nebraska. And he probably, you know, he seems to have information about Johnny, about your son. The phone was answered by Noreen's husband at the time. And so Leonard John Gosh, basically, you know, he, he gets the call. He's like, well, I don't know, but I'll go check it out. He does not, however, tell Noreen about this call. He never lets her know about uh, this lead that has just come in from Nebraska. And so he... He goes to Nebraska. He goes to the Nebraska prison, meets with the camp, meets with uh, Benassi, and also the private investigator that John DeCamp has enlisted at the time, an Omaha PI named Roy Stevens. And basically, you know, he meets with uh, he meets with Benassi, and you know, apparent reportedly, you know, according to DeCamp's book, and uh, this book is later endorsed by Leonard John Gosh as well as being very truthful. So. Paul Benassi, Paul Benassi, when he sees Johnny's dad, he's like, whoa, the, the eyes, it can't be. Like, you look like Johnny Gosh. Because, yeah, they did. You know, Leonard John Gosh really does look a lot like a sort of grown-up version of Johnny Gosh, especially at that time. And so Paul Benassi apparently makes a connection immediately, realizes that he's talking to the dad. And, you know, at that time, you know, Leonard John Gosh has just indicated that he was blown away by it. You know, that, and he talked to Benassi at that prison came away thinking that Benassi was credible and sincere. And so from that point on, the PI, Roy Stevens, began checking out various avenues of Benassi's story. You know, here getting debriefing Benassi on tape recordings about what Benassi claimed happened in the abduction, following down the leads, the various leads. And then 
ultimately, uh, you know, and then ultimately this would later come to the, this would later, you know, come to the attention of Noreen. She would find out about it the next year in March of 1991. And then a little bit after that, the story would sort of uh, break open from there. Now, basically the scenario that Paul Benassi gives is that he, there was this, uh, this man, this child trafficker by the name of Emilio, who was, you know, this heavy set Latino middle-aged guy, which of course matches the description of the guy who was seen in the blue car approaching Johnny that morning. Benassi claimed that Emilio was a long time, you know, participant in this Franklin network whose specialty was abducting children around the country and uh, you know selling them to other pedophiles who would want them. So Benassi claimed, you know, that he met Emilio as a kid in the Omaha area and that uh, ultimately right around the the Labor Day weekend when Benassi when Johnny was abducted that Emilio you know basically took him on a trip to a hotel in West Des Moines, Iowa. Where at the hotel, they met with a couple other people. There was this guy by the name of Tony, who was a tall, thin man with blonde hair, a pockmarked face. And this, by the way, you know, the t- super tall man description matches the other man who was seen at the uh, is seen in the neighborhood following Johnny on 42nd Street that morning. So, and then also a man by the name of Sam. So uh, basically, according to Benassi, there was this whole planning meeting there where Sam, this guy by the name of Sam, pulls out, you know, pulls out a, a photo album, a photo album that consists of nothing but photos of paper boys in Des Moines. You know, all paper boys who are carrying that yellow Des Moines Register paper bag and isolates one photo that is of Johnny Gosh and says, this is the kid we're going to take tomorrow and sort of walk through the logistics of what they're going to do to abduct this kid. And basically the logistics being that they're going to drive to the paper location. They're going to ask Johnny, they're going to approach Johnny, ask him a question. Then they're going to have Tony out on foot to follow John behind Johnny while the blue car ends up, uh, you know, looping back around going around the block to end up back on Marcourt Lane, right at the spot where Johnny is going to be. And then uh, they're going to use Paul Benassi, use the young kid, 15 years old at the time, Paul Benassi, to essentially approach Johnny, you know, make Johnny let his guard down, while the other guy who is following behind Johnny, uh, you know, Tony, is able to, you know, get the, get the jump on Johnny uh, you know, subdue him, and then they load Johnny into the back into the back seat of the car, the blue car, and then they all drive away. And at that point, so basically, as Paul Benassi says, that's exactly what occurred. That you know, Paul Benassi was there hiding out in the you know in the back of the car. That the car approached, the car approached the paper location. Emilio asked Johnny for you know, asked these paper boys for directions. The car then drove off, drove started driving east on Ashworth Road, as the witness accounts would say. Then the car made a U-turn in the middle, a U-turn in Ashworth Road, then t- turned around, started going back west on Ashworth, then so that it could drive up around the block, end up on Marquardt, and all the same time, Tony is following behind. The car pulls up right by where Johnny is, where his wagon is, out on Marquardt. Paul Benassi jumps out of the car, approaches Johnny, and you, you sort of gets his attention, 
Tony comes up from behind. Johnny is uh, subdued, you know, possibly by the you know use of a uh, of a you know, stun gun or other type of mechanism, as Noreen would later find, uh, and you know potentially something that might explain you know, explain Johnny initially being seen slumped over in his wagons if something had happened to him. And then they load Johnny up into the into the car. They drive off. They turn. They go north on 42nd Street. They go about a block away to another location where a van is waiting for them. And uh, this is something that the this is something that the neighbor, one of the neighbors who was interviewed by the Gosh's private investigators, actually saw that morning. He noticed that uh, while he was getting his coffee that morning, there was a van parked in the street with its motor running. And you know he made note he noticed that, and uh, ultimately while he was looking at the van, he saw this blue car drive up to the van. He saw people get out of the blue car, load something, you know, they're like wrapped up in a blanket, a fairly large object wrapped up in a blanket, get out, take it out of the blue car, load it into the van, and then both the van and the blue car drove away from the scene. And uh, this was a lead that Noreen got from her PIs. She buried it at the time, didn't talk about didn't actually you know tell anyone publicly in the media about this sighting that had happened and then here comes Paul Benassi describing pretty much exactly what the witness saw about how Johnny's body thing that they drove up to a van and then transferred Johnny's body into the van and then they drove off and so they drove off according to Paul Benassi they drove off uh, they got up eventually they got under the interstates and they drove west through Iowa until they made it to, you know, first stopped at a bar in Council Bluffs, so, you know, to sort of relax, the adults got a drink, and then after that they drove to a farmhouse in, near Sioux City, Iowa, which is also western Iowa, and there in Sioux, they came to the farmhouse, which was owned by a man named Charlie. This was apparently some kind of safe house in the Franklin Network where they could store these abducted kids, for, you know, until there was a buyer who came by and wanted to wanted to get Johnny, and so at that point, you know, Johnny and Paul Benassi were there, and the kidnappers basically ordered Paul Benassi to to actually molest Johnny on camera, you know, which is, I mean, absolutely insane. And this was essentially Johnny's first, you know, introduction to the tragic life that he would be leading for the next several years. You know, that ultimately a buyer came to the Sioux City house reportedly and purchased Johnny, a buyer by the name of the Colonel, and you know, took him, you know, took him from there. And uh, so at that point on, I think I've heard of Johnny that name before. Ba- Do they sometimes uh, try to associate that with uh, what the fuck is his name? How the hell did I Michael it? Aquino. Yeah, I was gonna say uh, caterpillar eyebrows. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I'm not 100 percent sure if that is the case because the Colonel is a name that is used by a lot of people in this network. There's another. I have investigative notes from Roy Stevens where there's another guy who was called the Colonel. There's also, I mean, John Wayne Gacy was called the Colonel by people. Oh shit. Uh, The pedophile oh. ring operator John Norman was called the Colonel. So you know, oh, there's this oh. theme. It almost seems like an archetype. You know, a name of a tr- heavy in the trafficking world. It doesn't necessarily mean that it was. Michael Aquino, and I guess to be clear as well, I, Benassi, uh, Johnny would later show up at being in captivity of the colonel. I guess I should clarify that it's not 100% clear if the colonel is the one who purchased Johnny at that point in Sioux City or if Johnny was passed around from you know, owner to owner in this pedophile ring and that the colonel was just one of the later people. But yeah, ultimately Johnny was sold to somebody. The kidnappers made a decent amount of money off of this and uh, 
from that point on, Johnny was, according to Paul Benassi, a member of the Franklin Network for quite some time. According to Paul Benassi, he did later run into Johnny again in March of 1986 when he went on a trip to Colorado, this sort of rural uh, ranch in Colorado where Johnny Gosh and a bunch of other kids were held captive in this uh, sort of cavity, this basement. It was dug out underneath the house and basically you know, met Johnny at this house, this house supposedly being owned by the colonel used to keep these kids before they'd be taken to parties or whatever, and also says that uh, he and Johnny and some of these kids were actually taken out to a Mexican restaurant near Denver at one point. And uh, basically, so yeah, I mean, that basically he talks about Johnny being, you know, taken into trafficking, taken to the Franklin network and Isn't just, Paul uh, and Alicia both have a story of going, uh, I could be wrong, going to Colorado as well. Like they both corroborate that story. I don't, I don't personally remember. I'd have to go back and check the notes because they were taken to a lot of locations. I don't remember if Colorado came up, but it wouldn't surprise me. Yeah, no, I know there was one I thought that they, like, flew out and they both ended up, like, at the same place, but there was, like, three of them, and I think Paul got split up, and then the Alicia and the other kid went with somebody else, and then they ended up, like, coming back there a few days later and then getting back on the plane being brought back home. Like, yeah, I, I do they, remember they, that. They I think that was Los Angeles. Them. Oh, okay. All right. I'm not, I'll have to check that. But yeah, I mean, Colorado is undoubtedly a, a center for this sort of thing. You know, there are a lot of uh, weird cases that happened out there. You know, for example, in 2011, this guy named Pat Sullivan, who was the former sheriff of Arapahoe County, he had been the sheriff since like 1984. Uh, he was a very well respected figure at the time, was sort of a giant within the law enforcement community. He was friends with uh, both George w, George Bush Sr. and also apparently with Bill Clinton. He was an advisor for Bill Clinton on various crime committees, including you know advocate for gun control as well. He uh, so he was he was a very heavy hitter in the Colorado law enforcement community. He also he had a propensity to show up in all sorts of weird cases, even cases outside of his jurisdiction. He showed up in an important investigative role in the Columbine mass shooting and he he would later you know try to discredit a member of his sheriff's office who indicated that a cop had actually shot one of the kids at Columbine that it wasn't just the uh, alleged two alleged sole perpetrators Harrison Klebold and that you know Pat Sullivan discredited this guy ultimately fired him and said I firmly believe there was no cover-up in the Columbine investigation so that's the kind of stuff that he was into and it turns out that Pat Sullivan at the same time had a hidden side to him and that he was a meth addict and also a you know was constantly patronizing you know you know I mean having these sexual liaisons with uh, men but also almost certainly underage you know, boys as well and uh, basically, he was a pedophile. Uh, he was knowingly giving people HIV, not telling them about it. Oh, he was God. really in this decadent lifestyle. And this was the sheriff of the county, a super decorated man, well-respected man, so well-respected that the local jail was named after him. And ironically, he would find himself incarcerated in the Patrick Sullivan Patrick J. Sullivan detention facility, which they soon after realized maybe we shouldn't be naming this after him and got rid of that. But yeah, he was and he was interrogated by cops by the by sheriff's deputies, and he was actually asked, "Do you think you had you know 
contact with any underage boys and he was like, you know, I don't know, I could have, which is not exactly the strongest denial that, you know, I imagine if he's not even willing to deny it when his uh, image is on the line, I feel pretty confident in saying that he did have these kinds of contacts with underage boys, that he was absolutely a pedophile. And it's, it's a lot of stuff about Pat Sullivan is weird overall. You know, the fact that even after he retired from the sheriff's office, he still kept his key card access to go into the sheriff's office whenever he wanted. They didn't revoke it. And then you want to go really, uh, really far into it. There's a guy, a 9-11 researcher by the name of Jonathan Elinoff, who actually came across. He was the one who broke the Pat Sullivan story in the course of looking into this guy, Delmart, Delmart Vreeland, who had apparently was an off of the Naval Intelligence guy who predicted 9-11. And Vreeland was also a pedophile in Colorado and Apparently studying Vreeland led him onto the whole network of pedophilia within Colorado involving, uh, you know, involving Pat Sullivan, but also a massive network of other people that, you know, members of this network, confidential informants who were related to the Pat Sullivan case had, you know, manuals on how to abduct children. They had, you know, meth making equipment, mobile meth labs, and this was a massive spider web involving, you know, the meth culture, nightclubs that were owned by suspicious businessmen, uh, white supremacists, you know, Denver PD officers being paid off, and uh, mobsters of various stripes. And, but basically, yeah, I mean, not to get too far afield, but that is the kind of thing that does go on in Colorado at very high levels of power. And uh, a lot more stories from that state as well, which certainly lends credence to the notion, to what Benassi is saying about Johnny being taken to Denver or to, taken to Colorado, and uh, it is interesting in that you know no one would have really thought to bring up Denver. You know why this is a Midwest story. We're talking about Omaha. We're talking about Des Moines. Why would Benassi pull Colorado out of the hat? But he you know he says it, and uh, it really does appear to check out given what we later know about the milieu. So anyway, you know this is a story that Benassi told to Roy Stevens, and later and so. In March of 1991, Noreen Gosh finally ends up learning about Benassi. You know, for some reason, when her husband, Leonard John Gosh, found out about it, he doesn't tell Noreen. Even as the story is being evaluated, he basically keeps her in the dark about it. But Noreen does find out eventually in uh, the next year. There are differing reports on whether it was uh, her husband who told her or whether it was Roy Stevens who told her. I'm not totally sure on that myself. I do have my... Uh, suspicions which we can possibly get into a bit later but basically once noreen and john were both on the same page of learning about this you know it was a good lead for them but they didn't but noreen did not you know contrary to what people will later say about her trying to discredit noreen she did not just jump on the bandwagon and believe Benassi immediately she thought it was important to try and check out the story and uh for its validity so she and uh, and Leonard John got and her husband decided to get a photograph, you know, got a photograph of Sam Soda, the guy who had been their pre-existing suspect from even before Polonasi came forward. They got the photograph of uh, Sam. They sent it to Roy Stevens. They didn't give any identifying information about the photograph. They didn't tell him who it was. They just said, "Here's a photo. Put this in a lineup and see if Paul Benassi can identify him." So uh, Roy Stevens did that. He put Sam Soda's photo in a lineup with a bunch of other you know, unrelated photos, showed it to Paul Benassi, saw if he uh, knew anything, he could recognize any of the photos. And Paul Benassi, amazingly enough, 
picked out the photograph of Sam out of the lineup of a bunch of other photos, wow. picked out the photograph of Sam Soda, said, yeah, this is Sam. You know, Because remember, when I was talking about the pre-planning of the abduction, there was a guy named Emilio, a guy named Tony, and a guy named Sam. Oh. And Paul Benoff said, yeah, that's Sam, the guy who was involved in the planning. And he's the one who showed us the photo of Johnny Gosh and said he's the kid we're going to take. So you know, Paul Benassi was able to match up with evidence about a suspect who the Goshes were already focusing their efforts on even beforehand, which is, you know, honestly incredible. You know, there's really goes to show that there is something real, you know, sincere to his story. And also I would say, given all the stuff I talked about before about Sam Soda having these underworld connections, having protected, you know, being protected for his involvement in child pornography and also being knowing about a pedophile who was employed by the Des Moines Register that no one else seemed to be aware of, the fact that Sam Soda showed a photo album that consisted solely of paper boys in Des Moines and uh, is very troubling in that sense and suggests that Sam Soda was sort of a, you know, a local hookup, a liaison between these you know, interstate people like Emilio and Tony who would go around the country grabbing kids and also the local you know, pedophile scene, people at the Des Moines Register who were keeping an uncomfortably close eye on these kids and, you know, making note of which kids could be uh, targeted for kidnapping, that Sam is essentially, you know, selling these abduction opportunities based on stuff that he, based on stuff that he knows locally about these perverts and uh, selling them to members of the Franklin Network. And on the topic of the photos, there's another major thing that corroborates Paul Bonassi's story, that... Uh, Paul Benassi, you know, when Paul Benassi talked about the photo, you know, he talks about the photo and he also describes the photo as being, you know, yeah, Johnny carrying his paper bag. And this was also amazing to Noreen and uh, her husband at the time, at least, because there was, in fact, a witness who was some around the neighborhood who on basically it was a couple weeks before Johnny's kidnapping, sometime in August, who saw Johnny as he was walking you know, walking in the afternoon one day after school. And Johnny, in addition to having his morning paper out, also had an afternoon paper out for, you know, the sort of the daily, you know, paper that would get delivered then. And so this woman actually saw, as Johnny was walking down the street with his paper bag, this guy, this someone in a car with California plates, was snapping pictures of Johnny Gosh. And, uh, this was uh, this was very disconcerting to the woman who noticed this that morning, but she tried to report it to police, and the police said, well, taking pictures is not a crime, which, I mean, in all fairness, I mean, it's not. I guess you couldn't do much there, but didn't even save the information either. And then so the woman you know, was like, well, I've done all I can. She unfortunately threw away the license plate number that she had recorded for this car, and so later on the PIs who are canvassing the neighborhood on behalf of the Goshes come to this woman. They get this story about Johnny being photographed in advance. And at this point, the woman sadly doesn't have the license number anymore, so they can't definitively trace it to anybody. But at the very least, they have this piece of information pointing to Johnny being photographed in advance of his kidnapping, and they know the, the nature of the photo, you know, what Johnny looked like in the photo and the background you know, of where he was photographed in front of. So the Goshes bury all of this evidence they don't tell the public yo are you there oh okay now it's screwing up here 
and he's even able to describe the photograph in, you know, according as the Gauchos indicate, really basically perfect detail as to the nature of the photo that was taken that uh, taken a couple weeks before. That's another major thing where you know Johnny simply, you know, Banasi simply knows too much about the circumstances of Johnny's kidnapping. And you know, same for as I mentioned, the van as well. That is a piece of information that was collected by the PIs and was never never made public what the witness saw. And then suddenly here comes Paul Benassi and he's able to just talk about it with uh, perfect, accurate details. So it just becomes clear that there's so much about the logistics of the abduction that is pretty much impossible for Paul Benassi to just come up with as you know, a supposed con man if he would be dismissed as unless he really really was aware of this. And then even the house in Colorado that I mentioned, you know, that starts to lead to promising avenues as well, that uh, Roy Stevens was in fact able to find the house in Colorado. He was able to locate it out in uh, rural Colorado in Buena Vista, Colorado. He was able to find it, and there actually, in, 1980, in 1993, was a film crew from America's Most Wanted, the TV show, uh, that John Walsh was doing at the time. It went out to the house in Colorado, uh, you know, and Paul Benassi, as soon as he walked up to the house, had a you know very distinct you know, emotional reaction. He broke down, started crying, and then they went to the under the you know basement that I mentioned that was dug out under the house. And creepily enough, they actually found kids' initials that were carved into the wood in that basement you know corridor underneath the house. So this house that Paul Benassi talked about Johnny being taken to wasn't just a figment of the imagination. It really existed. At the same time, you know, Paul Benassi was also getting various letters during his incarceration uh, you know, from other people he knew through the Franklin Network. And a lot of these letters were making reference to JG or making reference to Johnny. They were talking about the guy Emilio. They were talking about uh, the colonel. So basically talking about all of – pretty much talking about uh, – uh, alluding, it would appear very likely to Johnny. Like, well, there's one letter that even says JG was not the only boy we got from DM, probably meaning Johnny Gosh was not the only boy we got from Des Moines. Very strongly hinting that Eugene Martin, who I mentioned, was also kidnapped by the same pedophile network as well. And another one of these letters actually made reference to the uh, the Mexican restaurant story that I talked about. You know that Polmanoffi. You know, like, is, is that not he, a like new- actually can de- describe something that was on a wall? Yeah, that that's what I'm about to oh, uh, right. about to sort of get into. Yeah, that uh, basically. If it wasn't, I was going to ask you about that if you knew about that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Basically, what happened was uh, at some point in like 1991 or something, uh, like the summer of 1991, I believe some friends of the Gauches just happened to be out, you know, vacationing, you know, traveling to Denver, whatever. They ate at this Mexican restaurant there. It was uh, the restaurant is Casa Bonita in Lakewood, Colorado a Denver suburb and one of them went to the bathroom and they saw this message that basically this message that said Johnny Gosh was here written in uh, what would later be found to be the sort of red nail polish on the bathroom wall. And this report made its way back to the Gosh's made its way back to Roy Stevens. So Roy Stevens, he went out to the Mexican restaurant. He, uh, took pictures of the ex. he took pictures of the message on the wall, but also took pictures of the exterior of the Mexican restaurant. And so Roy Stevens showed these photographs of the restaurant, just the exterior of the restaurant, to Paul Benassi. 
and you said, does this ring a bell to you? And amazingly enough, Paul Benassi, you know, as Paul Benassi, as soon as he uh, saw the, as soon as he saw the photos just of the exterior of the Mexican restaurant that Roy Stevens had taken and brought to him, Paul Benassi was like, oh yeah, I went there with Johnny. You know, I was taken there with Johnny. It was like right after they had been at the uh, the house in Colorado, the house in Buena Vista. They were taken to this Mexican restaurant. He and Johnny and another kid were there, and uh, Johnny. And basically, at one point, they went into the bathroom. They had been painting their nails with red nail polish, and they wrote on the wall a message. So just from looking at the exterior of the restaurant, not being shown any other you know photos of what was inside, you know what what had no other indication of what Ruth Stevens was getting at, Paul Benassi was immediately able to relate this account about the visiting the Mexican restaurant and writing on the walls. And then Paul Benassi actually was able to produce a letter from one of these other kids in the Franklin Network that actually said, I remember the restaurant in Colorado. We painted our nails, and I wrote on the wall with J.G. So you know, there you have it once again, that Paul Benassi is simply able to describe a staggering amount of you know, seemingly intimate uh, detail about the Johnny Gosh case, you know, about the logistics of the abduction, about various sightings and apparent proofs of life. For Johnny, that you know, were not really well known before that point. There's just, it really is incredible how much Paul Benassi was able to say that confirmed his connection to Johnny Gosh, confirmed his connection to the abduction, and this is, you know, this ultimately is the, you know, why I think there is no real doubt in my mind that Johnny Gosh was taken by the Franklin Network, was a victim of the Franklin Ring, uh, and was. Uh, tragically abused by it for a number of years alongside the many probably hundreds of other kids in Franklin as well. Uh, maybe you would know. I'm almost positive. Didn't uh, Volbanasi, or maybe not him himself, but didn't the Gosh family and uh, didn't they end up on like some talk show and actually quoted Paul Bonacci as like having information that makes them think that like they... Uh, or whatever, like they it sparked it up again, and like didn't they end up on a talk show? Well, I'm trying to uh, trying to think. I mean, I know that uh, Noreen and to some extent uh, her husband at the time, Leonard John Gosh, did the sort of uh, media did the media rounds, and they did show up on they showed up on Inside Edition. They showed up on uh, it was some I think it was the Lisa Gibbons show at one point. You know, some sh- show where Roy Stevens. Uh, and Noreen both, you know, both showed up there together, and they even had a phone call to Paul Benassi while he was in prison talking about this stuff. So there were a couple media appearances, but this was all back around the time of the the early '90s, you know, '91, '92, when this stuff was first starting to break. Yeah, I'm almost positive I came across something like that when we were covering uh when we <clears throat> when we did cover like the the Franklin scandal. But uh, like, hmm. I was just like, oh, this is a whole other rabbit hole to get into with this paperboy. So. Yeah, you know, it, it is big and, you know, really does you know, kind of shed light on the dynamics of uh, the dynamics of how the trafficking ring works. That, you know, it's it's some some of these kids are I mean, some of these kids are lured in through, you know, the promise of going to a party or, you know, drugs or whatever. But sometimes these kids are just straight up ripped from their families and traff outright trafficked and taken elsewhere and it's uh, a very you know I mean it's a very, 
important dimension to understand about how the Franklin case worked. And, uh, you know, with more and more started developing about Johnny's, uh, about Paul Benassi's information, you know, a couple things happened. The West Des Moines police basically refused to talk to Johnny, you know, talk to Benassi. They basically said, well, Nebraska already discredited Paul Benassi, so we're not going to reinvent the wheel, which is very dubious for a number of reasons. You know, first of all, that Paul Benassi was never discredited in any court of law. There was a grand jury indictment against him for perjury, but this grand jury indictment was never followed up on. The grand, it was actually the charges were dropped. So even if you do believe this grand jury, and you shouldn't because Nick Bryant's book effectively demolishes it and shows what bullshit it was, but even if you did, Paul Benassi was still never convicted, so there, you don't have that same kind of black mark for perjury that you can even use as an excuse. But they basically said, you know, we're not interested in talking to Paul Benassi. Later on, they finally did talk to some family members of Paul Benassi, and then supposedly Paul Benassi's family members said, well, he was with us at home the entire time. But they were being asked about an event, you know, 10 years, uh, I mean, ten, pretty much 10 years prior. You know, I'm not sure that I could remember with specificity exactly what I was doing on a particular day 10 years prior. You know, I think that using that as a reason for discrediting Paul Bonassi is not at all compelling. It really seems as if the police department was finally getting enough pressure to you know, do something so they felt they basically just did the bare minimum until they could find another excuse to dismiss Paul Benassi and then go back to the same line that they always held to. And you would think that with such a cold case, you know, that the police department had not come any closer to solving Johnny's abduction, there is really no excuse for not talking to him. You know, that's not like the case is getting any warmer. Why wouldn't you check it out? You know, even a guy who has potential credibility issues could give you valid information why you're not even going to look at the information but they still never did so the only real investigation of sorts that would happen really fr come from uh, Noreen Noreen's own PIs people like Roy Stevens and also shows like America's Most Wanted which did a couple episodes on Johnny for quite some time and as I said America's Most Wanted was able to find that house in Colorado but they also, very interestingly enough, found a uh, found another guy by the name of Jimmy Gibson. Uh, Jimmy Gibson was about the same age as Johnny, and basically after America's Most Wanted, you know, they had aired a couple of things, including this uh, this brand, this so-called Rocking X brand, which basically is the Rocking X is like a is literally like the letter X, and then there's sort of a semi uh, the bottom half of a semicircle underneath it, so that the X is sitting right on top of the semicircle. This uh, Rocking X was supposedly a uh, a brand that was literally used on many of these kids, including Johnny. This was something that Paul Benassi talked about. He described he even drew the brand on uh, drew the brand, and it was shown on America's Most Wanted. And I guess once again, by the way, this might be something that seemed far fetched to people at the time. You know human trafficking rings that are branding people, but of course with Nexium coming out. Not, that, yeah. Right. So that once again, you know, this sort of thing, which you might think is totally outlandish really is proven later on that it does actually happen. But after America's most wanted showed the showed this brand, there was a, a person named Jimmy Gibson from Wisconsin who came forward and said, I was a victim of this pedophile ring too. I met Johnny Gosh, and I even have the brand to show to, on my leg that I can show people. So Noreen met with Jimmy Gibson. 
Jimmy told his story about meeting Johnny Gosh, and according to Noreen, Jimmy Gibson also related intimate details from Johnny's life, you know, that Johnny, that were never made public as well. And uh, he did indeed have that brand on his leg, the same Rocking X brand. And, uh, I mean, obviously, we can't totally rule out that there's just some weirdo out there who decides, I'm going to, you, I'm going to brand myself with a cattle iron or whatever, but I feel like that's a bit far-fetched compared to the notion that this person really was somehow affiliated with this network. And so Jimmy Gibson came forward. He basically corroborated a lot of what Benassi said, corroborated Johnny's involvement in the trafficking ring, also corroborated the existence of this house in Colorado. Both uh, both Paul Benassi and Jimmy Gibson went out to the house uh, when America's Most Wanted did. It's just that Jimmy Gibson was a bit reluctant to show his face. Now, Jimmy Gibson would have a somewhat weird trajectory later on. You know, he he would make Jimmy Gibson made claims of serving in uh, Marine intelligence. He would later show up trying to discredit Paul Benassi, discredit uh, Noreen Gosh, say that it was all a lie, claim that he was some sort of undercover FBI informant sent to infiltrate America's Most Wanted. And uh, most recently, this is actually very late-breaking news. It only happened in late July, and I only just found out about it this week. Jimmy Gibson was arrested in Wisconsin. He was arrested on child pornography and child abuse charges in Wisconsin recently. He's 53 years old or 54 years old now. So it does, yeah, it does appear very likely that, you know, this is, I mean, this is a cycle of abuse that sometimes happens. Yes, uh, I was just thinking that. Yeah, so, yeah, Jimmy Gibson is at this point, I mean, confirmed confirmed pedophile, it would seem, but he also was a confirmed, more or less confirmed member of this Franklin ring and supplying yet another major, major piece of corroboration for Paul for Paul Benassi's story. Now, the other major thing that was happening with the Gosh's private investigation at this time was looking into a, the man by the name of uh, Charlie Kerr. Because recall, as I mentioned, there was Emilio, the suspect, in uh, the suspect in Johnny's, uh, you know, the guy who was driving the blue car who approached Johnny. There was Tony, the guy who followed Johnny down the street and later was involved in forcing him into the blue car. There was Sam, who has been identified as Sam Soda. And these were the three people directly immediately involved in the abduction. But then there was also Charlie, who owned the farmhouse near Sioux City, Iowa, where Johnny was taken to immediately after his abduction. And uh, Paul Benassi did, I mean, he, he described, you know, this guy near Sioux City owns a farmhouse named Charlie. He also was able to draw a picture, like draw a sketch of what Charlie looked like. And Roy Stevens took the sketch, began investigating with law enforcement contacts around Sioux City, and was actually able to dig up the name of a man by of a man named Charlie Kerr. Uh, and Charlie Kerr was indeed a farmhouse owner. He owned a farmhouse near Sioux City, Iowa. He also, as I have, as I was able to confirm through public records a couple years ago, Charlie Kerr does have a record of pedophilia himself. Charlie oh, Kerr was—he was—he uh, was accused by his five-year-old daughter of molesting her, and uh, he, in fact, it was so bad that he was—he was only able to see her during supervised visits. You know, and even on those visits, he still molested her, according to the police reports that I got. So this guy is an absolute total fucking sicko and uh but this is the guy who paul Manassi, you know paul Manassi's information on charlie led to a very real person charlie kerr who was a farmhouse owner in the area and was a pedophile so you know once again you know you have this amazing 
extent of corroboration where Paul Benassi is able to come up with so much information that either matches what the Goshes already know, or he's able to supply information that then leads them to other discoveries that, you know, if he was just making this stuff up, it, you wouldn't expect it to produce more evidence. You wouldn't expect him to talk about a Colorado house where the kids were held captive and the house actually does exist and has a underground cavity with children's initials. You wouldn't expect him to talk about this uh, farmhouse, you know, this child trafficking safe house owner, Charlie, and then it turns out there is a guy fitting the description who is a pedophile. It's just that there's way too much that Paul Benassi knows that you really can't spin any other way than Paul Benassi being for real, actually no, being part of the abduction of Johnny Gosh exactly like he claims. Yeah, that's something I was going to, uh, well, I wanted to add too, and it was what I was kind of getting at before and forgot to like mention. You know, when Paul, you know, even Alicia and Troy, but back then at that time when they're giving their testimonies, it's not like uh, they didn't have Google Maps. It's not like you can go ahead and, like, just pick up an address and look at it on your phone from, like, the sky view or the street view, I'm sorry, and know what it looks like and make it up. You know what I'm saying? Like, these people were, like, describing stuff that's, like, you have to kind of be there. You couldn't go online and fucking look at it. Like, you know what I'm yeah, saying? It's that, a place you had to that be is, <laughs> yourself. That That is an excellent point. You know, it, certainly, I mean, and I do think it's likely a lot of people up even if they don't realize they're doing it, kind of apply that modern-day understanding, like, oh, yeah, you know, if I wanted to insert myself into this case, I could just Google details, read about it on Wikipedia, and, you know, just, like, look up some stuff on Street View and, you know, describe it and then just tell that story. But you're right. You don't have anywhere near that ability to instantly research a case back then. It's uh, information flow is a lot more difficult than it is now, and so... Paul Benassi's ability to describe this stuff was argue, was honestly far especially impressive in the context of the time coming out in the early 90s than it even is now. And I think a lot of people lose that realization that there is no, you know, no reasonable scenario to my mind where you can say how Benassi knows all this information without acknowledging that he is a credible witness. You know, mm-hmm. a lot of it's often said, you know, all these conspiracy theorists will just uh, make up, you know make up evidence that, you know, to fit their worldview, but there comes a point when the conspiracy is honestly more compelling than the explanation that it was all made up. That, you know, it's if you're going to go with that whole you know, notion of, oh, just, you should apply Occam's Razor and go with the simplest explanation, but Occam's Razor says it has to be the simplest explanation that fits all the evidence. And so you have to acknowledge all the evidence that points to Paul Benassi being truthful, and when you do, the simplest explanation really is just that Paul Benassi was correct in what he said about the Johnny Gosh abduction. Yeah, there was even a lot of stuff uh, when I was covering the Franklin cover-up, when I was like listening to uh, all their testimonies and stuff. There was a lot of stuff I did start to like kind of look into and started to realize like that's how I even came across Johnny Gosh's stuff is trying to corroborate to see if like any of his stuff like was known to somehow be double-checked. And that's when I started coming across, like, well, one, I started listening and actually watching his interviews. And I realized, I was like, you know, there's a lot of detail here. And I'm thinking, like, put it this way. Like I mentioned before, the technology we had back then, a lot of the interviews that I watched looked like they were recorded from a VHS tape. You know, that's yeah, that's what yeah. we were dealing with back then. 
<laughs> right. Yeah, we are talking about so, late so I'm 80s, like, early 90s. I'm like, this kid, he couldn't have Googled this shit. I was like, so unless, like, he's scripted and, like, fucking really got it down great, I was like, this kid, I think, is telling the truth because some of it, to me, it's like you had to be there to uh, to, to, to really say all that stuff. So that, so that made me think that a lot of the stuff with the Johnny Gosh actually is, is quite credible. Um, I know we spoke beforehand. I often wonder if the whole idea that Johnny Gosh ended up being that dude in the White House is a story to add on there to make it seem so silly that now you discredit anything that goes along with Johnny Cash. Yeah, I do think there was likely an element of that. Yeah, the whole Jeff Gannon thing where people were like, oh, you know, Jeff Gannon, JG, you know, at, uh, and male prostitute, oh, what if that's Johnny Gosh? And uh, it became such a big, you know, media circus in the alt, you know, in the alt media world, the parapolitical conspiracy community where a lot of people were very heavily believing in it. And still, I still find people to this day in the conspiracy world who do believe it. But to clear the air about that, Johnny's mother is absolutely adamant that Jeff Gannon is not Johnny Gosh. Simply, you know, the physical descriptions are not, do not line up. Uh, Johnny Gosh would absolutely have been taller than Jeff, than Jeff Gannon was uh, you know there's pretty much no doubt about that so it, it there is really no evidence pointing to them and you can actually document Jeff Gannon's history as well and find that he was a real person in you know various yearbooks around the time that Johnny Gosh was kid was kidnapped so you know, there there is no validity to that you know there is something suspicious about Jeff Gannon for sure but oh, it was yeah, yeah. having these people like Ted Gunderson you know who tried to attach the story of Johnny Gosh to Jeff Gannon and saying, you know, oh, I'm 100% sure that they're the same people. Ted Gunderson being former FBI, former COINTELPRO, who later becomes both a champion for justice in these cases is very, uh, very disconcerting to me. You know, and I think you're right that there's a lot of effort to insert elements like this to just make the story look more and more fantastical so that people are inclined to dismiss everything. Yeah. Um, if you don't mind, I guess we'll wrap it up there as well. I think you pretty much uh, covered that. That was amazing. Sure. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that was. Thank uh, you. Yeah, that went a lot different than I even expected. Like that was like some. I was like, holy fuck, some detailed shit. Yeah, I mean, I'm. It has gone on a while, you know. Sadly, you know, there are a lot of other potential connections to, uh, you know, the John Wayne Gacy stuff. You know. Oh yeah, I know. I originally. Project. I originally had Gacy's name in the in the fucking in the name of the title, and I've already edited it out because I was like, we didn't even get to Gacy. I just put Paul Bonacci's name in there instead. Yeah, I mean, suffice <laughs> to say, this is a uh, Franklin is a very large network, oh, and yeah. uh, a lot of pedophile cases from the '70s do appear to play a role in uh, some of you know connecting to some of what Paul Bonacci has talked about. There are signs that you know Paul Bonacci has talked about other. You know, Paul Benassi's information does potentially connect in some other kidnappings, like the uh, kidnapping of Michaela Garrett in California in 1988, which there's currently a guy who's accused of that, but I have some serious doubts about whether they're really involved or whether they're being set up to once again detract from the whole pedophile ring uh, aspect because way back in the early 90s, there was a customs, uh, some customs agents found a child trafficking suspect, a NAMBLA member, 
by the name of Richard Helwig, who was apparently trafficking kids down in Mexico, and this girl, Michaela Garrett, was seen down in Mexico, according to some victims of Helwig. And that in and of itself, is a, Michaela Garrett's abduction is another abduction where this mysterious Tony character shows up as, a, as basically matching the description of Michaela Garrett's kidnapper. And this mysterious Tony character is someone who I've come to suspect for a while may uh, may have been part of the John Wayne Gacy and John Norman pedophile network inner circle. But that may be a topic for another time. It's yeah, just, uh, yeah. I was actually gonna, sorry. I was actually going to ask you if you don't mind. Besides the topic that we spoke about prior, which I, I don't want to mention yet until we have you on for it, I would love to have you on for the Delta Nine project and the Gacy and the Norman and the Paskey connection. So, yeah, yeah, of that, course. Because that, I, I think, is yeah. so... I mean, that story in itself is just like... Like, I don't know, I mean, they're printing shit out of the prison? I was just like, what the fuck? Right. <laughs> the <laughs> level of yeah. insane... Pro- <laughs> Come on. I know, I mean, John Norman That's zero fucks, be- too. Zero fucks given. I mean, they're sick fucks, Are- too, but I, I mean, zero fucks. They just didn't give a shit. No, I mean, you'll, you have to you find it funny in a morbid yeah. way. That John Norman, he's able to skate on these charges so many times. You know, He is probably one of the most prolific pedophiles or child trafficking guys ever who keeps... He's been arrested like a dozen times, and every time he gets busted, he serves a short sentence and then starts up his next iteration of his pedophile magazine or his you know, Delta, Pro, Delta Project type thing or whatever. So he's it's right pretty much index he's, cards? Yeah, he's like the it's like a fucking cockroach of a pedophile that you can't get rid of him. He just keeps on going again and again, and the charges never seem to stick for whatever reason or another. Because of the people he's supplying, I would assume. Yeah, that. absolutely. <laughs> yeah, so that I, really is. Sorry, go ahead. Go ahead. No, I said. I mean, that absolutely is it. And uh, yeah, Paul Manassi, yeah. for what it's worth, has one at one point did make a statement where he talked about a pedophile ring in Chicago that seems uncannily similar to the one that Norman was operating. But again, that may be a story for a future episode. I think it will no, be good ground definitely. to cover. For sure. Yeah. Uh, George, if you can let everybody know where they can find your stuff again. Yeah. You can find me at uh, cavdef.org. That's C-A-V-D-E-F.org. If you go to cavdef.org, I would recommend you know, going once you get there. You there's a homepage. Click on the tab at the top. It's wiki, and that pretty much takes you to the data dump of sorts that I run with all sorts of information on these pedophile ring cases. You know, summaries of the Johnny Gosh abduction and links to all sorts of public records and other you know newspaper articles that I've collected over the years and all sorts of information on these cases and also various other cases I look at. You know, I look at political assassinations and mind control, serial killer stuff election manipulation, there is a, a lot of stuff on CAVDEF, and I, I find a lot of it interconnects in ways that you might not have expected. Yeah, I actually, I was looking at your site before, and I was like, yo, there's a lot of fucking shit on here. Yeah, it's been <laughs> no a six, six, I know. It's a six-year project of mine. It's been out there for like, a while. holy fuck. I was like, yo, this guy's got credit even trying to just make this on, on the internet. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you. Yeah, yeah. I really do appreciate it. Yeah, no, thank you for coming on. I, I, I honestly, I was already getting messages from people like, "Oh my god, you got George on." So, <laughs> I told you, yeah, I had people that were asking me to have you on. So, thank you for coming on for real. Uh, that was awesome. Everybody, go check out his stuff. His links are in the bottom, 
And I'm definitely going to have to have you, well, you still have another topic to cover, and I'm definitely going to have you come on for that other stuff you just mentioned now. I think that'll be Oh, great. yeah, definitely. Yeah, you definitely brought the heat with this, man. You, you blew, you know, you totally, I thought it was going to be a good show, but like, holy shit, like that's, the, honestly, this is an episode I'd have to listen again myself. Like there was a lot of fucking info in there. And it's just like, what the fuck? Like all this, all this stuff connects. And it's, it's definitely, I think one of the biggest cover-ups for sure. Yeah. It's a mind boggling case. Yeah, yeah, it's I an think old one, but I think it deserves more attention. You know, without a doubt. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you for having me on. It's, it's sure, been great. Sure. Yeah. So, uh, that is the end of a, uh, another NY Patriot episode. Uh, check out the, in the bottom, we got his links and we got my links and yeah, until the next one, everybody be well. Later.